Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to the What's Next podcast, where I have the pleasure of welcoming Michael Kanick to the show today. He is the author of Ruthless Consistency, How Committed Leaders Execute Strategy, Implement Change, and Build Organizations That Win. He's also the president of Making Strategy Happening, a consulting firm that helps committed leaders turn ambition into strategy and strategy into reality. For the past 20 years, he has instituted the structure and discipline of his strategic management system in organizations across North America. Previously, he managed the consulting division at the Atlanta Consulting Group, and prior to that, he held a leadership role at FedEx. He also earned his PhD in psychology of human performance from the University of British Columbia, a former national championship winning college football coach. He's also a member of the Marshall Goldsmith's 100 Coaches Global Initiative. Michael, welcome to the show. Fantastic to be here. Thanks, Tiffany. Boy, uh, I almost feel like, I, you know, I don't know if I've had a psychology PhD on before, so I'm going to have to be on my game. All right. <laughs> That's right. So we're going to start this out with something I call bullish and bearish. Um, nothing too painful. Bullish is you're for it. Bearish is you are against it. Right. And we're, and we're going to see uh, how good you are at one word answers. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of a running joke. I get that. Well, it depends. So we're going to, we're going to try to go for it. All right. Okay. We'll do my best. All right. So first one, bullish or bearish, learn to love what you don't love doing. Bullish. Yes. I knew you would go bullish on that one. All right. Former athletes as executives. Bullish. All right. That's two for two. And the short answers, I'm, I'm, I'm worried. Okay, next okay. one, last one. This is a little more fun. Life on Mars. Bullish. Nice. All right. <laughs> it's like <laughs> you got to do something fun, right? Why, why not? <laughs> why not? Well, let's start right at the beginning because uh, I, first of all, I love the title Ruthless Consistency because I think it just emphasizes the importance of being consistent, but I'd rather have you sort of describe, you know, why you called it that and uh, what led you to feel like it was needed in the market. Well, my entire experience, both consulting and coaching, Tiffany, and my uh, corporate experience with FedEx, what I found was that when strategic change didn't happen, why didn't it happen? It was because of leaders. Their intentions weren't matched by their words, their actions. So there was a lot more of intentions than there were doing the things it took to be successful. So simply put, I found they weren't consistent. You know, they, they trumpet excellence, but then they tolerate mediocrity or, or say, you know, we're going to fly to the moon, but not give people the resources. So somewhere, somehow they were inconsistent. That's what undermines strategic change. So if we want to be successful, whether in business, in sports, in any field, we have to make sure that our decisions and actions are relentlessly aligned with our intentions. That's what I mean by ruthless consistency. And, you know, listen, I, I couldn't agree more, but that one little sentence <laughs> is such a massive statement for so many reasons, right? If you've ever you know, for people listening, if you've ever tried to run a team and, you know, get everybody to organize and be consistent and, um, you know, try to create the right environment, all that, it's difficult, you know, even internally as yourself, let alone trying to do it for 10 people, a hundred or a thousand. So, you know, how do you make that digestible for people? Because I think that's always been an aspiration. 
Right. And you're right. It is very difficult. It's much easier to say than to do. And that's why, you know, 70, 80 percent of strategic change initiatives fail. You know, despite good intentions, they don't happen. So to break it down into bite-sized chunks, I like to think of three things. Have we developed the right focus? You know, a concise, compelling, clear focus. What is it we want to achieve? Next, have we created the right environment? An environment of both engagement and performance where we capture people's hearts as well as their heads and get them consistently pointed in the right direction. And then thirdly, have we built the right team? People with not only the right skills and experience, but the right traits to be able to do what we need them to do. So when leaders develop the right focus, create the right environment, build the right team, and do that with ruthless consistency, those are the organizations that win. So love that. Love three step. Let's dig into the first one because I think the right focus, you know, I, you know, uh, we sort of share in having written a book and my book was Growth IQ and, and <clears throat> it's sort of like being smarter about growth was kind of the whole concept of it. Right. And I think these three are it, right? And because you have to have the right focus, you have to have the right environment, you have to have the right team. That's kind of part of that thinking side exactly. of it that I feel right. And so if, if somebody goes, well, I think I have the right focus because I think underneath some of the statistics, you, one of the statistics you rattled off, you know, about kind of 70 or 80% failure rate is a, a lot because sometimes people think like they're doing the right things or they are making the right decisions and they don't realize until it's too late. So how do you develop the right focus and know that quote unquote, right is right right now? Right. The first test is to look what look at what you're focusing on. And I can tell you, Tiffany, that every organization I've ever consulted with, I've ever read about, everyone takes on too much. Too many strategies, too many projects, too many initiatives. We become the victims of our ambition. We want to do it all. Well, the reality is our focus gets diffused, right? Our energy gets diluted. And the next thing you know, we're inching along at a number of things and we're not completing anything. So if there's one thing I'm relentless about when it comes to the right focus, it's do less. Do less, do less, do less. Focus on the very few critical must do, no excuses, this has to get done or else. Focus on those very few things, resource them sufficiently, and then expect results. So the first thing in doing in focus is really doing less. We all we all take on too much and we get distracted. We get sidetracked. We don't concentrate our focus on what's most important. Yeah, and funny, I, I sometimes I'll say to executives, like, what's your focus right now? Kind of what's your strategic imperative? Let's say the top couple things you're trying to do, right? And they'll go, Well, right. it's you know, one, two, and three. And you know, sometimes they'll say in no particular order. And mm-hmm. then I'll say, Okay, well, what's what's your Number one priority, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. You can't have three number ones. Right. I mean, I went to a state school, but I think there's only one number one. <laughs> so, uh, okay. So that's the, you know, do less. Too many things, right? Do less. The second one is create the right environment, which I'm guessing has a lot to do with culture. Absolutely. And th- this is what's essential. When you look at strategic change, leaders often think of, well, we have to get people through training or we have to communicate with them. Well, what I found was that, you know, organizations can do a great job of training and still fail, a great job of communications and still fail, a great job of resourcing and still fail. And when I looked at, you know, what is the common thread? What is it that correlates with success? I found that there is no single thing that correlates with success. So it's what's more important than anything you do is everything you do. 
everything has to be aligned with winning. People need to understand the, the, the goals. They need to know what's expected of them. They need to have and be equipped with the resources and the skills and the authority. They need to be provided feedback and guidance as to how they're doing. They need to be reinforced when they're going doing things well or held constructively accountable if not. We need to design our organizations to align our processes and policies with what we want to achieve. And we need to value people as individuals because that's when we get discretionary effort. So the right environment is one, Tiffany, where everything, everything we say, everything we do, all the processes and policies and practices, everything is relentlessly aligned with what we want to achieve. Because anything misaligned can send a mixed message. And mixed messages demotivate people and, and undermine leadership's uh, efforts and kill their credibility. So, you know, it's the mixed messages that kill us. That's why we have to create environments that are ruthlessly consistent, where everything points people consistently in the right direction. So true. Third one, build the right team. I'm going to guess that plays right off of what you just said, right? So we have develop the right focus, you know, you know, uh, too many, do less, <laughs> create right. the right environment, right? And then the third is build the right team. So what, how does that play off of it from a culture standpoint? Right. Well, from culture, here's what's most important. You don't want a team of great individuals. You want an individually great team. And too often when we select people, we're selecting just the individual for the individual role, not thinking of how do they fit, how do they mesh with the team as a whole. So to get at that, I like to look at not just their skills and experience, but their traits. Because the experience will tell you what, what an employee has done. Skills will tell you what they can do. But traits tell you what they will do. So do they have the right traits to fit with your culture and your team? So for example, one trait might be, do they take initiative? Another trait might be, how well do they deal with adversity? Right? Do they take individual responsibility? Do they look to collaborate? Are they selfless? So I want to understand their traits because if we want a culture of both engagement and performance, and I think every organization should want a, a culture of both engagement and performance, we have to make sure we're selecting people with the right traits, not just skills and experience. So that leads me to my <clears throat> one of my bullish embarrassed questions, right? About former athletes making great leaders. Right. And I know that in in Ruthless Consistency, you interviewed many people, you know, right. uh, and and kind of studied their stories. Uh, I'd love to to hear because I'm going to guess some of that is also very uh, Lindsey Vaughn, who's an American um, downhill skier, who's obviously right. I think if she's not the most decorated female Winter Olympic um, athlete, she's probably in the top two or three, but. Uh, what 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 did you what did you hear out of her specifically? If you if you can share anything along these three, sure. The with athletes, and again, you know, there are a lot of good traits that athletes at you know a competitive level will have. But but here is a key distinction I thought I found was really uh, really important, and that is think of athletes as either either naturals or workers. Those who have great natural ability and those who have had to work to really, you know, achieve what they've achieved. What I've found is that the naturals are often disappointing when they get in fields outside of athletics because often they got by on their natural ability. They got by on ability alone. They didn't have to work as hard. They didn't have to develop the habits. They didn't have to practice as intensively. But if you find the people who are the workers, those who overachieved, maybe they had limited physical ability, 
but they worked very hard to accomplish what they did. Those are the kinds of traits that carry over into business and, and any other field. Now, look at Lindsay Vaughn. This is where you have somebody who was not a natural at a young age. She was considered to be quite unremarkable, but was a very intensive worker. And her coaches you know, estimated that she skied tens of thousands more slalom gates than her competitors did in practice. She spent far more time in training, just in physical and weight training, six hours a day in training, even during the season. All of this continuing even after she had won World Cup titles. So she really raised the bar for what it means to be a worker in terms of that, you know, the World Cup ski circuit, what that year-round training looks like. So she's a great example of a person who was a worker who really overachieved, even though at a, a young age was a very unremarkable athlete. Yeah, and I think that that is something you personally, I you know, was an athlete when I was a kid and through college. It's like the heart of an athlete. It's very different. You know, you learn how to be coached. You learn how to be self-disciplined. Uh, you learn how to sort of win in a humble way and lose with your head held high. But more than anything, it really is about just testing your mental fortitude <laughs> on, you know, doing things you don't know how to do and failing and, you know, getting sore, your muscles get sore, and then showing up again the next day and doing it again and again and again, going back to that consistency. Right. And, you know, I should add that it, this isn't just athletes or people in sports, any competitive spiel, uh, field. What I learned was that you don't just want people with a competitive background, people with a competitive spirit. So yes, that may have been in sports, but that may be playing chess. That could be gaming. That could be uh uh, music, you know, going uh, high level, you know, elite music uh, performers. I mean, there are a lot of fields that this applies to. So it's not just athletics. Athletics, of course, is a great example. We all uh, we all see and are, it's very visible to us. But any field that requires competition where you've had to develop a competitive spirit, work hard to achieve, that translates very well in business and other types of organizations. Well, and one of your other examples is Karl Lagerfeld, right? The fashion right. icon. So based on what you just said, right, that it's not just athletes. I mean, there's an example sort of in fashion and right. and his relentlessness. So maybe you can share some of that. Well, what I love about Karl Lagerfeld is think of the fashion industry and how quickly things change, how fickle fashion is. Well, here's a guy who is the head of creative design at uh, Chanel for 35 years, for Fendi for 50 years, as well as his own design house, I mean, this was somebody who transcended, you know, more seasons, more fashions, you know, where where fashions become almost, you know, out of date when they hit the store racks. This was a person who is completely unnostalgic about the past. He was relentlessly looking forward. What's the next challenge? What's the next season? What's the next set of designs? And to do that into well into his 80s. I just love the fact that he never got complacent. He never got caught in the old ways. And uh, he was never, never viewed as perish the thought yesterday's man. Well, and also that not everything was a win. Right, right. <laughs> right. That's okay. And it's how you respond to that. Because, you know, you could get despondent over, over losses. But the fact is, that's the reality of life. In whatever field you're in, no matter how good you are, the question is, what's your psychology when you lose? Is the psychology to get despondent? Is it to lose confidence? Or is the psychology to double down on your commitment and effort to learning, to improving, to being better next time? 
Yeah. And that's kind of what I was uh, alluding to when I said kind of the heart of an athlete, right? It, and com- competition is competition can be in the business of like, I want to be the best fashion designer or the best chef, you know, or the best right. mechanic or the best right. whatever. Right. And, and it's about getting up every day and, and figuring out how can you, how can you do that in a consistent fashion? But, you know, I, I want to change this up a little bit and say, okay, now we've got a framework of how to be um, consistent, those three things that I think are, are easy for people to understand and sort of put themselves in. Okay, what does that mean to me? But we're in this very challenging time at the moment where, you know, everything has been impacted because of COVID. We're in, <clears throat> you know, it's on a global basis, which, you know, there's all kinds of things we could talk about. I don't need to spend more than 10 seconds saying we're in an unprecedented <laughs> time. Right. And so, you know, what I hear often in my executive conversations, as well as individual contributors, is I'm just overwhelmed, right? right? That I get the concept, but everything is coming at me so fast and so furious that I don't actually have time to spend on organizing my thoughts around what not to do, right? And what things can I eliminate? And I'm trying to be consistent, but I, you know, like I'm just going to pick London, depending when this airs, right? It was, op- and now it's back on lockdown. Right. right. And and Victoria in, in Melbourne, Australia, was on lockdown for 111 days straight. They're now out of lockdown. You know, I'm from Hawaii. Hawaii's gone in and out of lockdown, hopefully crossing fingers that it will stay out of lockdown. So, you know, I can get back. But ultimately, that uncertainty is every day you wake up, it's some potentially very big impact change to the way you work, live, educate, you know, whatever. So how should people take this ruthless consistency concept, which I, once again, totally agree with in today's uncertain times. Right. I'm happy you asked that because ruthless consistency doesn't mean, you know, mindless activity, robotic and repetition. Let's just keep doing the same thing the way we've been doing it. We're in a very volatile environment, a very volatile time right now. What I mean is a ruthless consistency of purpose so that everything you do As innovative, as creative, as varied as that might need to be, everything is aligned with your stated intentions. So, and people ask this sometimes, well, how can you be consistent if you're going to innovate? Well, the fact is, if innovation is consistent with you achieving what you need to achieve, that is aligned with, that is consistent. That's aligned with consistency. So again, I'm not talking at a micro level of just this mindless repetition. You know, we've got to be consistent with the overarching goals. Now, in a fast changing time, what does that mean? Number one, we have to compress the strategy cycle. This idea of, you know, strategic planning three years. Well, we don't know what's going to happen, you know, three months from now, Tiffany, much less three years. So we need to compress the strategy cycle. We need to recalibrate frequently and we need to role model adaptability for our people. As leaders, we need to let them know that, you know what, things are going to change. We're going to have to change quickly. It will be uncomfortable. It will be unsettling, but that's how it's supposed to feel. And I think as leaders, we have to let them know that that is the reality, that that makes us uncomfortable as well, and we have to fight through it because that's just the reality of our times. So I think those are a couple of things that that really put consistency in perspective, you know, that it is this consistency of purpose, even though we have to, you know, adapt and make changes and we really have to compress our, our our strategy cycle, our focus, just because we have to adapt so quickly. So speaking of, right, we're coming towards the end of 2020, getting ready for 2021. 
And normally, you know, I'm going to make a huge assumption here. People that are listening are like, yeah, you know, what I thought I was going to be doing January 1st or February 1st or March 1st or maybe April 1st, maybe, depending on where you are in the world, is not what I'm doing today. Right. <laughs> so, you know, the majority is working from home. So you have that. Um, you have all kinds of things around education, et cetera. I mean, you know, right. there's so many things. So what would you say? There's a couple of things. One, we have individual contributors who listen to this podcast. We also have sort of small business owners and 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 mid-sized executives and enterprise executives. And so when you think across that, when you say kind of the strategy horizon has to become more rapid, yes. that's kind of a leader comment. On the receiving side, the individual contributors like, yeah, they're they're sort of adjusting every 30 or 45 days. And while we're staying agile, it's a lot for me to be able to continuously have to respond, change, respond, get, you know what I'm saying? Get in a rhythm. And then all of a sudden I'm responding and changing again. So is there a point where there's too much of that uh, focus on adjusting? Yeah, there, there can be, there can be. I mean, if it's a case where we're overreacting to momentary changes you know, then it can be that we're overreacting, uh, that that's not good. But the reality is, you know, again, leaders, I think, can make it easier for individual contributors by involving them and engaging them. So I think people are much more adaptive when they feel they're a part of it. It's being done with them, not to them. So leaders don't feel that you have to figure this all out on your own. This is a time to engage your people. I'll say even more than ever and say to people, you know, here's what we're dealing with. This is what we're thinking of. What do you see going on? If we can embrace them and engage them in the process, people are going to be more adaptable and less uh, unsettled with all the changes that need to happen. We are going to have to adapt uh, quickly. But again, that doesn't mean that every day we stop doing what we did yesterday. There's some common threads that continue on. We have to deliver good service, right? We have to build a quality product. We have to make sure our message is getting to the marketplace. So we have to find those constant threads. Now, how we approach those may have to be adjusted. That's okay. But there are constant threads that we need to stay, you know, keep a hold of. Absolutely. And so the Monday morning ask, right? The Monday morning ask. If you say, look, maybe you've listened to this podcast and you were thinking about it one way and now you're thinking about it another, what's the step someone can take? You know, kind of that, all right, Monday morning, I'm an individual contributor. I should do X. Monday morning, I'm a manager. I should do Y. Maybe in my team meeting, my staff meeting, my next, you know, Zoom call, whatever. You know, I'm an executive and my Monday morning should look like, you know, Z. Mm -hmm. If you have those three. So I think we need feedback loops. So because it was your Monday morning your, uh, protocol last week, doesn't need to be your Monday morning protocol this week. What I like to do is you know, the night before is really plan the, the next day and look at how effective was my approach today in doing it. And I can tell you when I worked at FedEx, they always used to say the success of each day starts the night before. Meaning if you do a good job of picking up the packages and coding it and sorting it and everything else, then the next day takes care of itself. So I think it's important to look, you know, the night before that day and really question, you know, do I need to adjust my approach this next day? Don't come into the day on autopilot because that's where you can get in trouble. And don't try and spend the first part of the day trying to figure it out because you're already into the day. So if you can get to it the night before, the day before, that's the best time to really plan that next day and make whatever adjustments you need to make. 
Absolutely. And I, and I feel like, you know, if nothing else, we just did some global research out across uh, 20,000 people around the globe here at mm. Salesforce. And right. it was really about kind of this future of work. And what was interesting was there was a couple of things that I think lend themselves to um, what you've already said. One of which was when it comes to these kind of conversations about that sort of power of the culture and the teams and the environment, that executives feel like employees aren't keeping pace and employees feel like executives aren't setting the right vision and communicating consistently, right? right? Which is the things you've said. The second thing was, you know, uh, leaders have an opportunity, sort of a fork in the road of going back to the status quo or really taking this time to say, are we doing these things correctly? And what could we be doing differently? The third thing I think that really lends itself to what you're saying is that people are much more interested today than they were at the beginning of the year on reskilling, upskilling, and doing this kind of continuous education online, mind you, you know, because normally it would be like, I'm going to go do a class, right? And now it's it, they're much more open to doing things online. Right. And uh, that there was a lot of optimism around coming out of this and having this kind of beginner's mind, if you will, of not being, you know, that fixed mindset, but instead think, thinking about how, how can I really approach things differently? And that change is super hard. Uh, are there any, you know, examples that you can think of where you've worked with an executive? Because what I often hear is people will go, I completely agree with what you said, Tiffany. I can't get the rest of the organization to sort of <laughs> understand it, fall in line, right? The old habits, bad habits. And if, by the way, your company is growing, Right. even worse. Right. That's so right. let's, let's take that home with the sort of, you know, the optimism of what people have in front of them and see, and see what, what you say there. Right. Well, the number, your number one finding, and you talked about communications, of course, being an issue. If there's one thing I would emphasize with leaders right now, make sure you're communicating with people, not at people. With people, not at people. What does that mean? Too often leaders think of communication as one way. I'm pushing information at them. I'm keeping them informed. I'm updating them. That's communicating at people. Much more commu effective to communicate with them. To say what you need to say, but then get their input. So, you know, uh, and not just by asking, does anyone have any questions? Because Tiffany, when you say, does anyone have any questions? What do you typically get? No. Nothing. Right. You don't get anything. So better tell people, hey, pair up or get in a group of three. Take two minutes now. What's your number one reaction to what I've said? Or what's your number one question to what I've just said? Or what do you like about what I've just said? Or what concerns do you have? Get people talking and processing about what you've communicated, then get random feedback from people. And you say, okay, you've had a chance to talk. Now, Tiffany, what was a highlight from your conversation? What were some of your reactions? And then you go, you know, uh, Jake, what were a couple of things you guys came up with? So now you're communicating with people. And when you communicate with people and make them a part of it, it's much more effective than just communicating at them, which is very impersonal. Today, people need to be engaged. So the one thing I'd say as leaders, communicate with people, don't communicate at people. Absolutely. Well said. Well, Michael, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing all your amazing insights around ruthless consistency. I think consistency is often overlooked when you're talking about how to improve performance in companies. So it was a great conversation. So Please let our uh, audience know how they can keep in touch with you, get a hold of the get a hold of the book, and and sort of follow your thinking going forward. Great, thank you. Yeah, the, uh, as far as the book, our website makingstrategyhappen.com. 
that's where they can get the book. Uh, they can reach me at Michael at makingstrategyhappen.com. Love to hear from people. Happy to uh, answer your questions and get back to you. And um, yeah, that's the that's the book. That's our website. That's uh, how you can get a hold of me. It's been a great pleasure. Uh, thanks so much, Tiffany. Oh, thank you, Michael. I really enjoyed that conversation with Michael about ruthless consistency. I think it's really important. Sometimes we get so enamored by the big things we have to do and we forget the little things. And consistency is one of them that will play out time and time again. The more consistent you are in serving your customers, hiring the right people, leading teams correctly, communicating, it all works out in the end much better for you. So I I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Michael. Go out and get a copy of his book. Thank you for joining us on the What's Next, Next podcast. Please subscribe, share with your friends, leave some feedback. Look forward to having you join me again next time.